Good morning, everybody. My name is Dara. Hi, Dara. Hi, I'm a compulsive overeater and a very grateful one. I'm going to pass these around um, just so you guys can get an idea. I am, let's see where to start. Um, I've been in programs since 1998. I figured I'd get these out of the way that um, um, I came in in fall of 1998. And it took me about nine months to understand what abstinence was and to become abstinent. And I thought it would be good to document that. So I have 16 years, 10 months, 14 days of abstinence, which means 5,936 days, which breaks down to 512,870,400 seconds. So every second counts, I guess. And then the metrics as far as weight, I've been about 50 pounds heavier. Um, I take anonymity very seriously, so a lot of you may not really know me. You've seen me around, but you don't really uh, know me. And um, surprisingly to me, I don't think people um, knew that I was that person in those pictures. It's just, um, it's almost like that was another person in both, both of the extremes. So. Um, first of all, I want to thank Casey for asking me to do this because um, it's it really it's an honor and um, it's not as scary as I thought it was going to be. Um, when I came into program, I nobody had to tell me to keep going to meetings because I I was desperate, so I did a lot of that. And I remember you know walking into um, the log cabin up on Robertson. Some I'm, I know a lot of you used to go there, and. Um, I liked going there for, for a number of reasons, but one, because it was really a, kind of a neat little place to go. But what I really liked was that alcoholics went there also. So maybe if people saw me there who didn't know that I was in program, they would think that I was in that cooler group. But uh, <laughs> we, we don't get to pick these things. But um, what I remember, and, and, and it really set the tone for what this program is all about, is that the room... I, to me, the room was huge, and it, it had the, the feel of a, a synagogue or, or a church. There was something about reverence and respect, and it was a very, even though there was a lot of laughter and everything, there was something about it that it was a matter of life and death for people, and, and I got that. And I would, you know, watch a person get up in front of all of you and speak for what seemed like a very long amount of time and it just amazed me that they were able to sustain something in a very organized fashion and talk about what it was like and what happened and there was something about the, the way that traditions were done there um, it was very clear that what you would do is after the speaker spoke everybody lined up and they would they would individually thank the speaker and i i remember that being so important because when someone does this, you, you hear their words and you hear their story, but you don't really get a, a sense of who they are. But when you can go up to someone and thank them and it's one-on-one, -on -one, it made it really clear to me that that person was another human being. And it made me feel that, well, if, if they were capable of doing what they did, then so can I. So um, I hope that in my manner of sharing today that um, I, I'm accessible and that I say something that... Um, that makes a difference that's important to you. Um, let's see, childhood. Well, first of all, this is the neat thing, that when I was asked to do this, I said yes, because that's what we do to be of service. And then I kept thinking, how am I going to get out of this? Because there's no way in hell I'm going to... Can I say that? There's, there's no way in... 
this will's done unless you want to edit it out. <laughs> there, there's, there's no way that I am capable of doing this given that I'm very anxious. I'm, I'm a, a very nervous person. My memory, when I'm in that mode, I, I will forget things that I need to remember. And anyway, I went on and on and on. And then I thought, well, no, I've been asked to be of service. And because of you guys, a lot of people in this room, I heard you speak. And you made a difference for me, so I figured I'd better, you know, take on the task. And then it turned into uh, looking back through my life and my history. And I'm really glad that I did that to get that out of the way because I I realized how much stuff I've been carrying around with me. So, again, thank you. It just gave me an opportunity to kind of break all that down. I don't need to bring it into the room because we all have our stories. We all know you know what it was like to be so dependent on this on this drug just just to stay even just to stay even but um, I will share with you some of the uh, the things that were more significant because um, it'll help me fill up my time because there's still more to go Um, um, when I was born my parents were sharing a home with my grandparents and it was a tiny house Um, I had a, a brother who was older eight years older and um, I know that my parents, they really wanted another child. It took them a long time to be able to have one. And they were thrilled that they had a girl. So my story is, it starts out really nice, you know. And, and my childhood was very nice. And my parents were very modest. They were not the most confident people. They didn't have the greatest self-esteem. So I didn't inherit that. The values that I got from them were, were integrity and honesty. And I, and I know that being so comfortable with being honest in, in certain respects, certainly not with the food, but I'll talk about that later, um, allowed me to um, go through the steps and almost to an extreme of being overly judgmental to really um, look at what my life had been like. So that was the good part. But... Um, yeah, I'll talk later about the, the sneaky stuff with the food, because that's pretty much what, um, what prevailed. But um, my mom liked to sleep late, and unfortunately my... Wow, it's nice to see you. Um, my grandmother didn't, and she was the one who got me up in the morning and fed me. And, you know, the, the, the beautiful thing about being in program is having this opportunity to look back and I realize now that because I really didn't like, I didn't like her very much at all. Um, I did a 10th step on her that was very freeing, but still she seemed to be the root cause of a lot of my problems and, um, and shame. And, you know, she would like point out that, um, that when I was a baby and she would go and get me out of my crib that I was wet up to here. And she told me this for years and years and years and years. And finally it occurred to me, good morning, that you know, that's what babies do. That's normal stuff. But I was defenseless over, over all of that. So anyway, the good news is that where my parents' house was, that's where the 405 came. So we had a move, and then my parents and my brother and I lived on our own for a few years. But my grandmother came back, and um, how do, I'm trying to think of a very fast way to say this. When, when you have an extra person in the house who's not very nice, it just it, it creates an imbalance. And um, I think that, you know, as a little kid, we don't have a, very much of a vocabulary. 
there was really no way to express all that upset. But I found one that was really good and very accessible, and it was called food. So um, my grandmother, she was a great baker. She'd bake all these great cakes and everything. And because I have an allergy of the body and a compulsion of the mind, and I can't, there was no choice. That's, that's what being powerless is. There was no choice about this cake that was here under this little cake cover. And um, here's where the sneaky part comes in. When everybody was in a room and they were away from the kitchen, I'd come in and take the cover off the cake and then kind of, you know, work my way around the frosting just to take enough so you couldn't actually see the, you know, the body of the cake. But if I was a normal eater, I would have been able to stop. With this compulsion, I just kept going. So I just, I destroyed a lot of cakes. And I, <laughs> and I don't remember exactly um, what, how I was punished for it. Um, sometimes I'd be reminded that that was for company. Don't do that. But it was just this general feeling that I was doing something that was wrong and bad. And it was attached to food. But it didn't, it didn't stop me because if there wasn't cake, there were hot dogs in the, re, in the refrigerator. It didn't matter that they weren't cooked. I'd go in and take a couple, go in my room and, and, and eat those. Um, cookies in a package. Um, I'm sure some other people in the room have done this where you go in and you make sure that you don't rattle the package. You take a couple. You go in your room, you eat them, and then you go back to take more. So it's like little, little tiny bits, you know, but um, they were on to me. And, and my father, I, I'm pretty certain that he was a compulsive overeater. He was, for a while, he was on um, amphetamines. He just, um, it was a battle. I guess when you live with your mother-in-law, it's kind of a battle every day of your life, you know. So, um, and my mom was basically a, a, a normal weight person, but she was so obsessed with her appearance and her size and all of that uh, came out on me. So she was very quick to point out the body parts that I had that weren't in proportion and, you know, and, and um I think that because they didn't communicate amongst each other, there were no feelings, that the only way that they could really express themselves was with food. That seemed to be the the, the common denominator. So, yeah, as honest a person as I was, uh, ethically and morally, that was gone when it came to food. It just, I could not, I couldn't stop myself. So, um, I was kind of a chubby little kid, and I remember... Um, anything that I wore that had a belt or a waistband would get like it would get rolled, kind of rolled over. I didn't want anyone to touch that part of my body. Um, when I was 12, my mom took me to a doctor for a regular checkup, and then the doctor came out and he with this little diet, you know, this is you eat this many things, whatever, 14 grapes as a serving, and um, I didn't really have much of a voice then, but I guess this would be my my uh, remembrance of being passive aggressive of aren't you going to give one to my mom? As 12, 12 then was how, you know, 12-year-old children now have a means of communicating in a way that I did not have. So um, needless to say, my food plan doesn't, I, I, can't, I can't go there. I, um, but um, how much time do I have? Wow, how do, you, how do you squeeze a whole life into all those few minutes? I just want to jump ahead that to the um, to all the the diets that I did. I did um, water fast, 
juice fast. I did OptiFast, but um, I remember that about into the fifth week of that, that um, there were these women who facilitated it, and I told them what I had been doing, and that's when I heard the word binge for the first time. So um, they also directed me to an OA meeting that was downstairs in the building, and it was my second attempt. And um, I went down there, and um, I thought, there's no way I'm going to stand there and hold hands with people I don't know, and I'm certainly not going to be praying, because that's just a ridiculous thing to do, and I was out. And then right after ending OptiFast, my husband and I went to, uh, went to Italy, and while he was recovering from jet lag, I went out on the streets, and in, in one afternoon, I don't know how many gelato I had, but a lot. I mean, I, I, I couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop. And at that time, I don't think I had the means to question what was going on emotionally, that, you know, that type of thing. So, yeah, there was Optifast. There were a lot of other weird things that I did. And um, my best attempt on my own, um, I did manage to, you know, lose a fair amount of weight. And then... On the heels of that, went out for brunch with some friends on a Sunday, and no choice, powerless over food, and I just kept eating, 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 eating to a point where I couldn't bend, and I was in a great amount of pain, and I called my sister-in-law, because at the time, she had some little children, and I asked her if I could come and get her Ipecac, because I didn't have that ability to purge. Um, so that was a pretty that was a pretty low point, but it still didn't... It didn't register, and um, I really want to get into the recovery part, so I'm just I'm going to think of the most significant. Okay, let's get into diet pills, okay? That's, that's um, yeah, diet pills. There was a, um, a product that came out in the late 90s, FinFin, and at the time I was not, yeah, I was not huge, but I was bigger than I wanted to be, and um, started taking FinFin, and uh, they were so powerful. I was getting thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner. And at one point, I was down to 115 and a half pounds. Not for very long, but, you know, just long enough. And I remember thinking, I'm, I'm not thin enough. I remember going into stores and, um, you know, that th- I really liked that the salespeople would come over and they would help me with these little jackets and little, you know, little things that I could never wear before. And I had a good job then, so I could afford to, you know, go to Banana Republic and all of that type of thing. But that's all I was thinking about. That was all I was capable of doing, was looking at my body and working out. And then I started to gain weight. And um, actually, in the photos that I'm passing around, on the, I think it's on the second page, um, I was showing my husband this morning. And... Um, I asked him, I said, well, you know, I was really thin then, but how much bigger am I am now? And he said, he just said to me very simply, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to enable you. And I just thought that was really significant because he's, um, he fell in love with me when I was, you know, bigger than I am now. Anyway, um, let's see. I, what I really want to get into is, is to the recovery because I think that's what's so important. And that's what we're all here for is that... Um, when the FenFen stopped working and I started gaining weight, uh, I got laid off and had a lot of time on my hands. And I went to a doctor because I, um, I had never seen, 
I had never seen bones on my body because I always had so much weight on it. And this little bone here, I thought, well, surely that must be bone cancer. And, and, and I, re- I believed it. So I went to the doctor. The doctor referred me to a psychologist. And the psychologist, you know, I, I guess it's pretty easy to identify when someone has a, a problem with food. And she directed me to come to OA, which I was fine with that. And then she said, and you should also be going to Al-Anon. And I thought, well, 12 steps I can do, but 24, there's no way. (laughs) I didn't didn't know there was a difference, but I I was very compliant, and I did exactly what I was told. The only meetings that I was capable of going to were the ones um, that were women's meetings. And there was and still is a meeting at 14th and Olive. No, it's Mount Olive, 14th and Ocean. And it was a women's meeting. um, And the first night I went, I found a woman, and um, she seemed that she was capable. She was about, I don't know, like 15 years younger than me. But emotionally, we were were about the same age. And she took me through the steps, and she was was extremely smart. At the time, she was a single woman. Now she's married with two children. She's a great mom. So I'm, I'm very fortunate that I found someone as nurturing as her. And, you know, I was giving her my fourth step and telling her these things that I was, they were so horrible. And... It, it, it didn't phase her. Or when we would meet, she would, uh, we'd go like to a coffee bean. Can I, can I say a brand name? Is that? Mm-hmm. So, and we would sit down and she'd say, go up to the counter and find something that's yummy. She would refer to these things as yummy. And she'd make me eat in front of her because I was so accustomed to not eating certain things, of being exclusive, of, you know, you only do this. And, 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 uh, and uh, if you eat the wrong thing, it's going to be, you know, you know, anyway, I had so much judgment about it, and I'm hopping around now because I really want to squeeze in the important stuff. But back to judgment, my um, my sponsor recently told me she said, "Don't ask your higher power to remove all your critical judgment. Just ask for it to be lessened." And I thought that was just such a a, a wise thing to say because that's that's how recovery comes. It is a very incremental uh, incremental process. But the most important part I thought. Is that right? Um, is that prior to being in program, I had, I had, there was no spirituality. I had a great reverence for nature, uh, especially on a beautiful day like this. But no uh, trust in anything beyond myself because given how I was raised, I couldn't, I couldn't trust anybody or anything, which kept, kept me very, thank you, um, very isolated and... Um, it just kept me bound, so I really didn't have a lot, except I had either eating a lot or eating nothing. And um, because it's part of our program to work the steps and to seek a higher power, I was able to, to just kind of walk my way into that um, in, in, a, in a way that was comfortable. And after, um, well... It's still hard for me to talk about this stuff because it is so personal, but that's part of my job here today. And that any abstinence, anything that's come to me in, in the way of, of relationships, in, in, in the way of, of um, learning that life is really a quite a beautiful place to be and that I wasn't brought here to be, um, 
to live this small little painful little life it's all it's all been in recognition of this higher power that I have and I think that I already understood instinctively that you know when you look at anything it has a life cycle I mean right now we're shedding cells and we're growing new cells our hair is growing everything is changing that's how the universe is nothing is the same nothing stays stagnant so that part has always made sense to me that there's this force that it's just it's undeniable what I've come to find is along with this list of what I'm powerless over including food and people and places and things and time and and, and politics and the economy and, and on and on and on is that I am powerless over the truth and I am powerless over my higher power because I think we all instinctively know that we have values and we have things that we believe in and I, I, I think that that's the essence of what a human being is once for me I'll just speak my experience once I began to identify what those values were and I would operate outside of them it was just not good and, and the point that I'm at now in my life is looking at what these values are in terms of how I behave with, with you know with another human being how I think about things and then to recognize that I'm not always doing the things that I believe in. So there's, there's a lot of, um, of confliction there. And I'm so grateful because no one has to tell me what I'm doing that's not in alignment with my values. I can, I can feel it. And that has helped so much with the food. Um, actually, there's one thing I want to squeeze in here. Is are the opportunities that come from being in a program like this, um, I know I'm skipping around, but it's like packing for a trip. You know, you just throw it all in at the end. So um, are the opportunities to become involved in things like um, working on a talent show or putting together a workshop that was, you know, a very heartfelt thing or being a part of anything that we do here on a group level to feel included and to feel, to feel useful. And, um, and I see I'm forgetting the most important part of this. It'll come back to me. But um, that being of service is something that makes a person feel like they have a place on the earth and that if I can do something that's going to be helpful to another human being, all it is is really thanking them for what they've done for me. If it wasn't for you guys, and there are so many people here who've come before me, I don't, I don't know what my life would be like. There's, there's no way. There's not parallel universes. But I'm just I'm, I'm so grateful for these for these opportunities to be able to expand beyond my little uh, my little ball of fear. And um, one minute. OK, there was a workshop that real, it was a game changer for me. And in this workshop, this was about three, four years ago. The speaker, um, she said a lot. But what I identified with was that I was a victim. And I was also someone who, um, it was very hard for me to forgive people. And I had this issue with my grandmother that was, it, it, it was pretty, um, I had a lot invested into all this negativity towards her. And um, I really took what I had learned to heart. And I was noticing after a while that my, my pants were getting bigger and I was, you know, pulling them up a lot, and um, this went on for a while. I noticed that when I went to reach for a food there that I really didn't need to be eating, that there was something there, a consciousness, that I didn't, you know, do you really need to be doing this? No, okay, don't. 
But um, I was at the West Side Pavilion at, at the time. Time's up. Do I just wrap? Okay, anyway, I got on a scale at the GNC, got the little piece of paper that came out, and the weight was way too low. I figured the machine was broken, so I went back, did it a few days later, and I had lost a, a significant amount of weight without doing anything. So I, I thought that was really important to put out there for you guys because this is it's a program of recovery. It's about working steps. It's about tradition, and it's not about dieting. So thank you so much for letting me share. This is uh, time, oh, time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeater, Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need, to, you need not identify yourself because we're being recorded. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. So is there anyone who... Has a question, Steve. You tell us about your, uh, how your relationship with food has changed, the program, and what it is now. Okay, thank you. Okay, and you were asking me about my relationship, what my relationship with food was like before program, and what it is like now. Um, well, food then was a drug. It, it was, a, you know, a way to, to mitigate anxiety and depression, anger, resentment. Um, it, it was a, just a constant, a constant flow. Um, there, it was this. It was a drug, you know, plain and simple. And um, coming into program, I think it's it's coming in in phases. But right now, it's fuel basically. It's three times a day. Um, I have to eat breakfast, just because. And. Um, so three moderate meals, and then I eat two snacks, and the afternoon snack has to be at 3.30 or later. And I, I pretty much know what foods are going to, um, you know, work as fuel and what's going to just make me squirrely and be kind of stupid. But I, I do have to say that when I get really anxious, like, um, you know, preparing to speak today, that... Uh, I did some kind of weird things with food, but fortunately I was able to go back and listen to other speakers to find out that a couple of them had had that experience as well. And it's like, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm not certain that that answers your question, but from drug to fuel, maybe that would be it. So thank you. Heck, Barbara. Um, how has before program and now during program how has your reaction to stress changed? How do you deal with stress? How do you deal with stress now that you don't have to go? Yeah, see, that's a really good question. Yeah, the, the question was about dealing with stress, of, of how did I deal with it before program and now. And um, I, I honestly think that I don't, I never really identified with something that was called stress. I just ate. That was how I dealt with it. So, um, you know, you take away the food and, um, well, I got into therapy. That's one thing that I did to find out, to, you know, to be able to break it down. And my best means now of, of dealing with stress, it's, it's really my higher power. I mean, that's, that really is it because I never found a medication that would unstress me. And, and, and the irony is that food doesn't even do it because if I was going to eat to unstress myself now, it just makes it. It just makes it worse. It's like putting lighter fluid on, the, on a fire. 
but um, that's a great question because yeah I go to my higher power a lot to just you know sit down sometimes it's just breathing you know just getting calm and, and, and asking myself what am I reacting to you know what, what is it that's going on it doesn't work every single time but um, stress is a real problem you know it's just it just is so I think that we we're very fortunate that we have a gift that's you know, for free and completely accessible um, you know it can also be calling a fellow or sending a text I do a lot of texting um, and, and reaching outside of myself which is something that wasn't available before uh, before program so thank you yeah. Thank you so much. Um, how have your relationships changed um, with your family and friends? Um, and how did, that, how did that or does that at all connect to your course and mindset? And the question was how does my relation, how have my relationships changed from being in program and relation to fourth and ninth step? Well, um, the, the one that really comes to mind is this grandmother of mine that I, I, I talk about a lot. Um, in, in, in therapy, um, I, I, and I'm still told that's your grandmother's voice, so I funnel a lot into that. Working the 10th step of reading um, a letter to my sponsor um, about my grandmother, I, it was the first time that I really tapped into having some compassion for this person and um, understanding that she, well, it's just understanding that whatever it is that I've been going through other people have that as well and I'm, I'm only going to talk about her because that's the one that's the most significant is that she grew up on superstition she grew up on fear she grew up um, embodying all these all these things I'm sure she was anxious she just had a lot of um, and I resented her because she wanted to be the baby of the family not me and, and ultimately she was so anyway in in, in understanding all of these things and reading this letter it was really the first time in program that I had just sobbed I mean really sobbed and and I came to recognize that one of my fears was that I was her so if that's the case I have to do a lot of work to be compassionate towards myself and then ultimately um, rather than calling people idiots or you know whatever it is that I would do to remember that inside of them it's, they're, they're no different than me um, so that kind of covers all relationships thank you yeah you I, I beg your pardon second yeah actually thank you the question was do I talk about sponsoring um, yeah sponsoring um, as some of you in the room know um, sponsorship is well that's how we carry the message if you don't give it away you can't keep it it's just it's, it's fundamental and that's something that Bill Wilson certainly drove home is um I always had a sponsor I went through a little period where I was I had a lot of temporary sponsors and felt kind of unhinged and unsafe but um what I struggled with was being a sponsor um, because I didn't think that I had the tools um, to, to do that and um, so it, it got important enough for me to a point where I had to have a workshop about it so I could learn about it <laughs> and and, um, and, I, and the other thing um, regarding the question of sponsorship there's actually a book 
it's, it's a, um, a program book on sponsorship, and it's a really excellent guide for any of you who are sponsoring people. It just goes through every step of how you know when, you know, what to talk about, when it's done, the whole thing. I take it very seriously um, because it's, of course, it's very fundamental to the program, but to be fluent with this program, you, you have to be able to... Um, to not only understand that, but to be able to share that with other people. And, and I know that a lot of times I call my own sponsor because I'm, I'm you know, having my doubts about how I'm sponsoring other people. But, um, yeah, it's, it's really important and it's a, it's, a, it's a gift because this is the thing that, that the big gift from sponsor, well, there's many, but one is being able to become friendly and form a relationship with people who I would never become that close with. I have one in particular who I did not really like her at first, but she has taught me so much. And you begin to find out how much you already know, how much is already in there. So um, what I do is um, when I... <laughs> If, I, if and when I give a sponsor a, a specific assignment that's a little bit outside of the steps, I have to do it too. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really important and very valuable um, part of the program. So, Casey. Thank you. If you use literature in any way, program literature, uh, of significance, how do you use it? And the question was, if I use program literature in any significant way, how do I use it? Um, wow, that's a good question because it's been kind of inconsistent. Um, for a while, I would make sure that I would read a certain amount of pages every night. That didn't work because I fall asleep when I'm reading at night, um, unfortunately. But um, I read the four today every day. And I'm in a workshop where we're constantly reading and, and reading it. Um, in a way where you where you go in deep, and I think that's where I'm benefiting from the reading is to really notice. That's a really great question, actually, because wherever anything is italicized, Bill Wilson wanted us to really take that seriously. It's not just to change the font and make it look different. And whenever there's a question, is as I'm learning to answer that question as I'm as I'm reading. So it's maybe not so much about what I'm reading, but the um, looking at it in the way that you would, would analyze a poem or something to extract the, the, the real meaning from it. So I don't know if that answers your question, but thank you. Uh, Carol. Um, I was just wondering, do you always have a concept of a higher power or how did it develop the program and how do you stay in contact with the higher power? Mm. Yeah, um, I, I always had a sense of something, but I didn't, I didn't trust um, what that higher power was because what my mom would say to me, um, this little Jewish idiom was, um, we make plans and God laughs. So when you tell that to a little kid, for me, it was like, forget it. I can't, you know, I can't, I can't trust anything. I liked that, it, it, you know, when I'd go to temple in the book, it would say G-D. And I come to realize now the reason I liked that was because it was a placeholder that I didn't, it didn't have to be what everybody else was, was saying, but I didn't have trust in higher power until I came into program. And I was told that that was an okay thing to do. In fact, it, it was critical because that's where recovery came from. So now because of, of how I feel about 
nature and, and, and the natural world. It's just it's having a higher power is a natural part of, of my um, of my life that I, that I trust more than anything else, I guess. That's all that stuff that's in us that makes babies. That's that's my higher power. So, and Carol. Um, two questions. One is, I'm fascinated that your person said, I went out your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. How did you learn that? <laughs> and second, you talked about that small voice that said, oh, if you ever need that food, what does that small voice do when you go, am I too? Okay, that's that's a really good question. The question was about my husband. Where did he learn how to say I'm not going to enable, going to enable you? And um, the second part was about the voice. Um, well, I've been in program for a long time, so my husband. I, I talk about this stuff all the time, and um, he's learned the, the you know the lingo. He he, he picks that up, but. Um, because I'm in another program that I really shouldn't be talking about here, about it more intensive about relationships, and that's really changed how I am with him. So, it's 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 made him um, we're more connected, and the relationship is more intimate. And um, he actually he made me laugh this morning because he knows that he, he he's not going to give me the right answer. Whatever he says, it's not going to go well. So I think it's just because he just, <laughs> it, just, it just wasn't. And the other thing about about the voice, I sometimes I just have to figure that if I'm wearing the same clothes every day, and I've, and I've been about the same size for, I don't know, a year or whatever, I just have to trust that, you know, just trust that the jeans fit. And I'm, you know, I'm at an age now where I'm, for my age and everything, I'm just fine. And if I... Um, it's still an issue, though. I mean, to be honest, it's, it's, it's still an issue, and it may always be, but it's just lessened. I think there's more acceptance about it. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm very grateful that I can wear belts now. And um, there's just a, there's, I have more peace around it, so there's less judgment. Does that make sense? Okay. And I think my time is just... Oh, Carol, yeah. Oh, thank you. And the question was about the character defect that I've had the most relief from in program and the one that still got me by the short hairs, kind of. Um, gossip. Got, that became very evident because I think that, you know, in, in a way of acting out resentments and things that I, you know, it was very easy for me um, to, you know, to say to one person what this one had done and aren't they idiots and, 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 and this and that. And you know, clearly, well, first of all, from going through the steps and finding out um, that, that was one of my huge defects, that kind of caught my attention. But, it, you know, when you're in a program like this, we're in a community and we have to have each other's backs. So I notice that that's carried over. I, I, I do my best to have that carry over um, into everything that I do in all my affairs. So that's, that's manageable. But the other defect is, um, well, I don't even, all I know is that my level of, of self-criticism and um, 
you're, it, you know what, you're, it's, it's hitting too close to the spot where it's true. So um, I'm, I'm kind of struggling with this. But um, my self-esteem, all of those issues of how I, how I see myself as being less than, of being incapable, of being um, missing parts, and um, I think I just still haven't um, been able to have enough compassion so that I'm like this with everybody else, that most days I'm, I'm like this, and I have to really watch being like this because I think those are the ways that people can, uh, can go. So it's, um, so I, I, I just struggle with my own um, insecurities. I guess. So, and that's. Are we are we about to wrap here? Anybody have a? Yeah, background. It was that letter. Oh, the question was, what did I do specifically to let go of the anger towards my grandmother? It was that that tenth step letter that um, of, of all the things that I had blamed her for, but that things that I became understanding of towards her, I think that that was kind of the way that it was, that it was written about um, understanding how painful life must have been for her. And um, that's the best of my recollection. But it, it, was, it was just more about compassion for her that I wasn't willing to admit before.